We like to say often that we believe that Jesus is not just true news, but good news. And that the good news is true news, the true news is good news, and that Jesus brings this to us, not to our best versions of ourselves, that maybe we put out there, but he brings us to who we truly are, in the depths of our sin, in the depths of our suffering, in the depths of the us maybe that no one else knows but him. That he's not running from us, but running to us. And, and we've seen this in a series that we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke that we're call, calling Meals with Jesus. We're focusing as a church this year on what really is at the heart of our, our mission and passion together in the heart of everything, and that is this radically ordinary gospel hospitality. That it would become normal in our lives what was normal for Jesus, and that is we would be engaging in our everyday living spaces people who have yet to come to know Jesus or even those among us who have yet to experience Jesus as really life-changing good news for the stuff of everyday life. And this week we come to a familiar encounter that doesn't explicitly say that there's a meal that takes place, but most people assume that this would have been happening. And this is Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. I know some of us that grew up in church, maybe you're already singing the little song in our mind, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Might have to get Val to sing that for all of us afterwards today. I'm sure he would enjoy that. But what I hope today is that we would see that this same encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus is the same type of encounter that he's calling all of us to experience, and hopefully many of us have experienced, but then to follow Jesus and seeking to see many other people come to see their lives truly changed in the same way that Zacchaeus did. And to see that the doorway into that is not merely public events, is not canned gospel presentations, is not published programs, but happens through radically ordinary gospel hospitality. So read with me in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that is the crowd watching, saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood, said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Father, we thank you today for the good news we read and sang, confessed, 
and rejoice with us. We thank you, Father, that, that you are worthy of praise in view of your creation, in view of your mercy, and in view of your Son, in whom alone we stand with confidence now in your presence. Not with drooping heads, not defined by our guilt, shame, or fear, but safe, secure, and confident in Christ. And we ask today, God, that if anyone is not in Christ here today, that through the power of your Spirit, they would leave knowing that the hope that we sang of is their hope. And those of us who know it would leave today and live these truths, not merely in words that we bailed out on a Sunday, but that we enjoy on Monday and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tea or tea mac or sweet tea or any other kind of weird name I could give him is not here this morning. And so, but I've gotten permission to talk about him. So uh, Cassie and I often talk when we talk of tea, and if you know him, he's just this well-put-together uh, Lee College student. He's very intellectual. He likes to talk about philosophy, likes to talk about theology, likes to talk about deeper things. And, and you, get this, you get this picture when you think of tea as, oh, wow, tea must have came from this you know, family that just really had it together, who really knew what they were doing. Probably a, a long line of, of faithful Christian influence. And last Sunday afternoon, we were, uh, had the honor of getting to have lunch with T's family. And sat down and, and, and oh, here, here are the parents. Here are the ones who must have this, this lineage of, of Christian greatness. And then to, to ask his dad, tell me about yourself, tell me about your story. And what happened was so unexpected. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I was an addict and an alcoholic and a part of a gang. And one of my buddies who had got on the bad side of a deal had been beat to within an inch of his life and was in a hospital. And I went to visit him and he said, you know what, you better get out of town because if they find you, they'll kill you. And so he didn't know where to go, so he's, he's heading down south and happens to just stop in Cookville, Tennessee. And while he's there, the Spirit of God decides to sovereignly work through this little ragtag, free will, missionary, Baptist church to bring him to faith in Christ. And to meet this lady who had never attended church in her whole life that was a waitress at Cracker Barrel and to bring her into the family of God and to see him move from a, a life that was characterized by deep rebellion and deep doubt and, and deep pain and sin and now become the leader of an organization that helps bring both teens and adults out of addiction. What in the world does that have to do with hospitality? Well, I think as I've studied this and thought about how this passage related, it has everything to do with it. Because so often I believe the reason that we do not open our lives to people apart from Christ or we don't open our lives to, to others even in our own life is because deep down we really don't believe people can change. 
You know, if we're honest, we think, what's the point? The best we could get out of this is some kind of meal that I'm going to have to slave over, some kind of invasion into my privacy, some, some type of thing that I just have to do because, you know, we're, we're doing this series at church and they're always talking about me doing this. But really, at the heart of it, it's because we really don't have this expectation that God continues to this day to reach down into people's lives and can change them at the core of who they are. Hospitality is often fueled merely by duty than by the hope and the power of God to bring true repentance. So let's think out loud together as we often do, even if we, you restate some things I've just said even in your own words, is how does our hope that radically ordinary gospel hospitality will, can or even will by faith lead to real change how does that affect our passion for it and our prioritizing of it? Yes, thank you. I figured I needed to. How does a hope that ordinary hospitality can lead to extraordinary change affect our passion for hospitality or our prioritization for hospitality. Good. She didn't hear Rachel. You don't, you don't have to do anything showy or over the top, right? Because God, God brings the change. That's beautiful. I mean, we, we think about all these things that have just been shared, and hopefully if you didn't share out loud, maybe something came up in your mind. It's like we think in these ordinary moments that we're a part of a bigger story of God's grace. So we want to see God break in in these extraordinary, beautiful ways, but, but we may not be the ones who receive that on the, on the reaping side, but every step that we take is a part of something bigger where we may be the sower, we may be the water. But at the heart of this, and at the heart of our hospitality, the love of the stranger, the love of the outsider, outside of us, even among us, and even in our own hearts, must be a, a rooted, convicted belief that our God's hand is not too short to save. That the Spirit of God is not impotent in the face of all of our dysfunctions and all of our disordered desires. But we must then exercise gospel hospitality and a confidence of gospel hope. We're going to say the same thing a few different ways this morning, but the first thing is, is that hope-filled hospitality reveals either a denial or a trust in God's sovereign, powerful grace. The first thing we see here is it's revealed in who we write off or who we welcome. So he entered Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And if we put ourselves back into these first century shoes, this is just a description of like the most wicked, evil person that you could imagine. And he is not only this wicked, evil person, he's the chief. Now, if you've not been here, you've heard us talk about this category of tax collectors before, but a tax collector was a, a Jewish person who had begun to work for the Roman government. And he was to collect taxes for the Roman government, but he was able to raise the percentage of that tax and take whatever he wanted off the top. 
So he was an exploiter of his own, own people. He was one who, in financial terms, was a persecutor of the weak and the poor. And Jericho would have been Grand Central Station for this. I'm not thinking Jericho Old Testament here, but Jericho here in this first century sense. This was a major collection site for taxes of the imperial rule of Rome. Zacchaeus not only participated in this, he was a leader of it. He was the chief of it. And he got filthy rich from doing it. He was good at it. This was your ultimate white-collar criminal. I want us to feel the tension here. If anybody may be unsavable, if anyone may be wouldn't deserve our pity, if anyone we might want to bring the hammer down on, turning his back on his people, on his God, and exploiting them for his own position, power, and possessions, it's Zacchaeus. Do we write him off? When we see him, do we roll our eyes? Well, it's revealed also in what we doubt God may be doing behind the scenes. Look, notice verse 3. And just so you guys know, Chris is not doing like brand placement of Matthew's table today. The PowerPoint's not working. For some reason, it's jerking back and forth. So, verse 3. Notice, this, again, this would not have been conceivable to, to people. To many people, and maybe not to us. It says here he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So you see this guy, you see a guy to be hated, you see a guy to be despised, you see a guy to be taken down, but in the background, God is at work. In the background, God has put within his heart this desire to seek and to see who Jesus was. We can only guess why that might be, but we know within this larger story is that Zacchaeus very likely would have heard, Jesus accepts people like me. Jesus welcomes people like me who everyone hates, whom everyone has written off. And Jesus changes people like me. We remember Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. We've already been to a party in his house in this series. But whether or not Zacchaeus has heard of such encounters, he has heard enough about who Jesus was that he wants to know more. Can someone like me, who's crossed so many lines, who's went so far into the depths of this spiral of self-focused living, of self-protection and self-redemption, would Jesus dare to welcome me? And we see this humility then that's welled up in his heart. We talked last week about the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son who was willing to, to hike up his clothes, as it were, and run to his son in such an undignified manner. Well, Zacchaeus here is taking on a, a similar humble position because he runs. So we can imagine Zacchaeus, this small guy, who knows, he may have short man, small man's complex, right? Might be behind all this. So he's having to make himself look big, make himself look tough through his power and his position. He might drive a super big truck. He's got it real jacked up. 
you know, and he's got uh, funny stickers on it, right, because he's wanting to show everybody, like, you know, I may be little, but, but I'm the man. Here he is, though, now. He has this chance to meet this one who might welcome one written off like himself, and he just runs. And then he does something even more embarrassing. He climbs a tree. What kind of grown man climbs trees? Imagine a sophisticated, powerful public figure that you know is climbs a tree to see the float going down the street at the local parade. Kind of like, guy, get down from the tree, that's embarrassing. If it was your dad, if it was your grandfather, if it was you, like, come on, we don't climb trees anymore. power of God is at work. The power of God takes proud, self-important people and can humble their hearts so that they climb trees to get a glimpse who Jesus is. And we're called to ask ourselves today, whom may we be looking over that God already may be working in? I want to ask that again. Whom might we be looking over that God might already be working in? For me, maybe it's, a, a, it's similar to Zacchaeus. It's a lying politician who gets wealthy off the backs of regular working or unable to work people. What are yours? If you want to be honest this morning, say it out loud. Who is somebody you're like thinking, this is somebody that I have no category for God to be working in or to rescue or to change. Anyone bold enough to share? What? Thank you. didn't hear, we're mentioning some, some mentioning specific people they've experienced in their lives. Others mentioning those who exploit people, others who may be in deep addiction. But hope-filled hospitality trusts that God's sovereign grace is greater than the status any other person has, and maybe any other person like Zacchaeus has earned or even deserves. What do you see when you look at other people? Do you see the addiction? Do you see the poverty? Or do you see the riches? Or do you see the bad theology? Are you overlooking someone that God could be working in? And I think if we're honest, part of the reason we struggle with this is because maybe we really don't believe God has the power to change us. Be honest, some of you are thinking, man, I'm just such a mess myself already. I've got so many things that I feel like I haven't changed in my life. When we look at ourselves through the definition of our own statuses, of our own sin, and of our own suffering, it's very easy for us to have a bigger view of our sin than we have of our Savior. 
very easy for us to have a bigger view of the power of our own suffering than the power of God's strength. If we think we're too much for God to handle, then we very easily and naturally, even if subconsciously or unconsciously, will see others as too much for God to handle. And then our tables, our hospitality, and the way we reorganize our lives and our schedules will reflect that. Who's not at your table, but who might God be at work in? But also hope-filled hospitality reveals a denial or a trust in the Spirit's power to truly change. So again, we're going to say this again from another angle. Verses 5 through 7, we see this is revealed in who we invest time in. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him. We see this again and again in the gospel, is that Jesus sees people who other people would rather not see. There are certain things, certain people, in certain places and in certain positions in life that we just would rather not see. We don't want to see people in the depths of their sin, in the depths of their suffering. It, it disrupts our lives. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And it brings all type of emotions that we would rather just shut down. But Jesus continues to lead us in the path of seeing, of slowing down, of looking and believing that people are worth looking at. And it's revealed in whom we go to the table with. Notice the end. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now this is why this is going to evoke such a reaction. Because many interpreters see that Jesus is using this language. He's going to be a guest. He's going to stay at his house. Is that Jesus is not here going to make a cameo at Zacchaeus' house. He's going to be a guest. He's likely going to, to stay multiple nights and have multiple meals. He's going to be with him. He's going to be associated with him. And he's willing to go do this before we see any sign or evidence that any true change has happened in Zacchaeus' life. This is messy. This is the order of grace. But those who live under the order of law don't like it. And so it's revealed in whose company we find ourselves in. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. There's this crowd that follows Jesus. There's this crowd that's in every city. This crowd who has a view that the law of God reveals the heart of a God who just wants us to keep a list of rules. That views that we are welcomed into God's presence, not based on what He's done, but based on what we do. Not based on who He is, but based on who we are. And Jesus does not play by their rules. Because grace has a name. Grace's name is Jesus. And he goes to be the guest of men and women who are sinners. Are we grumblers or are we goers? Are we those who step back and murmur at this notion, this vision, this idea, this path that Jesus gives us? that we would dare to believe 
that the least, the last, the lost, the worst, the best, to be changed. Do we grumble at that? Do we say, what a waste of time? Or do we go with Jesus on that? That reveals what you truly believe about the power of the Spirit to change. It's revealed not only in whom we invest our time in here, but who we believe can truly be born again. Now, I'm taking, talking truly. I'm not talking about some slick, used car salesman type presentation of the gospel where we get, you know, we say, hey, if you, if you raise your hand, we're going to give you a TV on the way out. Or if you'll be baptized children, you know, we're going to have a, a, a prize for you. Or if you'll raise your hand, I'll, I'll end the service. No, but a belief that people can really be changed. Oh, Lord, help my unbelief. Because I'm preaching to myself right now. To believe that what happens in verse 6 can be a reality. It says he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. This was no mere duty-filled response. Zacchaeus had no Nothing to gain from this other than Jesus himself. That's what true conversion looks like. When you choose to follow Jesus and you have nothing to gain but Jesus himself. So many in the religious south, as other people have pointed out, would be perfectly fine to go to heaven and Jesus not be there. Because for them, all that it means to be a Christian is, is to avoid their notion of hell. But the way of Jesus says, I want Jesus if I don't get anything else. That the Spirit can give humility to the most proud, can give joy to the greediest of idolaters. That Jesus is better than my money. That Jesus is better than my prestige, my position, and my possessions. And that the Spirit can bring Jesus home to a man who was likely known as one of the most self-protective. This is what true, biblical, genuine conversion, new birth, being born again, being brought into the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like at the root for every one of us. Zacchaeus hasn't done a thing yet. But Jesus has found him, and that is enough. Maybe you're here this morning, and as you reflect back on your life, all your conversion experience was was a mere transaction with a religious idea. Maybe all it was was you just wanting your get-out-of-hell-free card. Maybe you gave Jesus your afterlife, but you didn't give him this life. What true conversion looks like is not, is not merely a profession of your faith, but a possession of the Spirit of God that leads you to a life-changing, joy-filled encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. It's not perfect. 
that it is a profound difference. And when you have that, it, it shows. So if that's the root, joy in Jesus, that hope-filled hospitality can bring, then what is the fruit? We see this in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, so they're in this house, they're all eating, they're hanging out, and Jesus says, Behold, Lord, then Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. This is amazing. Remember, he's rich. He could have gave maybe a 10% to the religious group that would pat him on the back. This is important. He doesn't care about that crowd. Because Jesus says where our treasure is, our heart is also. And Jesus says it's how we love the poor that reveals if we love him at all. Matthew 6, 21, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, if you want to check that out for yourself. He says, I'll give half of it. Nobody's forcing him. Jesus sitting running a capital campaign in his house to try to raise money for a new church building. The Spirit of God has come upon his life, and he says, Jesus, half my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And then he says, if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. I mean, wouldn't it have just been enough for him to say, I'll just restore it equally? He says, I'll restore it four times as much. This is amazing. You know what creates this type of response? It's not law, it's grace. If anyone thinks that a, a big theology, a big doctrine, a big conviction of the grace of God leads to legalism or laxness, that's just an example and an illustration that we've not yet understood what grace does. Because grace meets justice, shakes its hand, and says, we're buddies, but let's go three more miles together. Grace isn't about tit for tat. Grace, when you meet grace, you're no longer asking, what's just enough for me to do? Because you know God has done for you way more than what you deserve. And not only did he not give you what you deserve, he's given you more. He's made you his son. He's made you his daughter. And he said that all that is mine is yours. And when grace affects us, then our lives are marked by creative, extravagant restitution and restoration, not only before God, but with everyone in our lives. Jesus says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. He is the son of Abraham. He's not merely been born into the people of God naturally. What Jesus is saying is here is affirmation. Zacchaeus didn't earn this, but we've just seen right now the revelation of a person who has truly become a son of God. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but I'll tell it a million more times. Is uh, my wife's uncle, his name's also Rusty. He he was a, a literal drug trafficker, I guess you'd say. He drove. He wouldn't hear me sharing it. He he drove a was a truck driver, 
And so he was the guy who let them put it in the truck, and he'll take it where it needs to go. And uh, he got busted. And in, in the middle of his getting busted, and uh, the season of, of going to jail, he became a Christian. Now, all of us in here, right, let's be honest, when we hear that, what do we think? Man, how convenient. I mean, honestly, that's what I thought. But then you started to get around him. And you see, this guy, all he wants to do now is talk about the Bible. And I'm thinking, well, there's 20 people, Christians in this room, and there's only one of them that ever want to talk about Jesus when it's not Jesus time, but he does. And then you learn these silly things that really are amazing. It's that he's reading through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and he gets to the Old Testament law, and he starts to obey it word for word. At least to the best of his understanding. So he tells his wife, no more, no more pork in the house. I mean, he is, he is doing everything. He's, he just, he's, he's, He's been changed by grace, and it's like, I'm going to do whatever Jesus says. And I remember him telling me when he told me this story, when he got to Mark, I believe it's chapter 7, and it says that in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He was like, yes! <laughs> and he told his wife, go buy some bacon! And no, nobody was discipling him, obviously. Because sadly in the church, what we would probably tell him to do is, Dude, chill out. We don't take things that seriously around here. We, we, maybe somebody would kind of pull him inside. Hey, just pick the parts that are convenient for you, buddy. You've already got heaven under control. Now, listen, all you got to do is show up to this weekly event deal. Make sure you don't say, say anything that sounds like it's wrong or weird. Dude, if you serve in the nursery and give a little money, they'll give you an award. But still, every party you can tell, I, you can tell, everybody wants to avoid him at the family get-togethers because he's going to talk about Jesus. Hope-filled hospitality, trust, and the Spirit's power to really change people. It's not revealed. Your belief on the Spirit's power to change people, that's not revealed in what doctrinal statements you protect. It's not revealed in what conferences you go to or which preachers you listen to or what books you read. It is revealed in who is around the tables of your ordinary life. If you really believe in a God who raises the dead, then there will be people that look dead in your life. And a life on mission will challenge this. Because this is not easy. This is messy. Not all corpses will walk again. But those who believe in the power of the Spirit to change really believe we can get more than a superficial prayer out of people. 
last thing, the heart of this and our call to discipleship is hope-filled hospitality reveals either a denial or a trust in the Son's heart to save. So either a denial or a trust in God's sovereign grace, either a denial and trust in the Spirit's power to change, and either a denial or trust in the Son's heart to save. This is verse 10. This is Jesus' summary of all that has just happened, really a summary of his whole mission, of his whole existence in this world as the Son of God and Son of Man. He says, for the Son of Man, for explaining, came to seek and save the lost. When you think of Jesus, and your call to be a disciple of him, a disciple, that is one who is with him, who is becoming like him, and is doing what he did. And you're saying, I'm going to be a disciple of him. Well, what did he do? He came to seek and save the lost. If that is not a passion, priority, and a part of the planning in your life and my life, then we dare not call ourselves his disciples because that's what he did. That's not just what he did. That, he says, is why he came. He is the seeker of the lost. He is not passive. He is not nonchalant. He is not lax. He is not lazy in this. He is a pursuer. He's aggressive. He's persistent. He does not have a view of his Father's will as whatever will be, will be. He came for you passionately. And he's the Savior of the lost. How passionate was he? How pursuant was he? How much of a priority was this to him? It was the point of giving his life for this mission. It was to the point of a death on a cross where he would bear the wrath of God in our place. That he would be misunderstood, that he would be shamed, that he would be mocked so that we could be saved, so that we could be his. So that even tax collectors, treasonous oppression could be paid for. And so that then he would rise and give them new life like he has done for us. We need to ask ourselves if we've been become more sophisticated than Jesus in the way we approach the mission of God. One of the... Uh, Members of our larger Soma community of churches that we're connected with tells this story of a, a person who was neighbor to an unbeliever. And over the course of, of a couple years, not just months, this neighbor said, you know, I'm going to be friends with my neighbor, but I don't want to be too pushy. And took it to the extreme that he didn't even really say he was a Christian. And he never talked about Jesus. You know, I'm going to be real winsome. I'm going to be real laid back about this. And then, but the neighbor through the encounter with another Christian, heard the gospel and was saved. And the neighbor got really excited and he said, I can't wait to go tell my other neighbor about Jesus. And so he goes and he begins to tell his neighbor about this life-changing encounter that he's had with Jesus. He's like a Zacchaeus. He's been saved. He's been changed. And he wants him to know. And the neighbor that's been living beside him for two years says, Dude, 
I get it. I'm a Christian. You know what the, the neighbor that just really came to know Jesus' response was? He was mad. Dude, how could you be my neighbor for two years and us have all these barbecues and meals together and you never mention that? That's like the most important thing in the world. You see, a hospitality that's filled with the hope of the mission of Jesus is not going to be a hospitality for hospitality's sake. We want to be wise. We want to be winsome. We want to be friends first. We want to be careful. But we must not lose heart of the mission of Jesus to come and seek and save the lost. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them heap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We're not looking for a southern hospitality. We're looking for a seeking hospitality. It's not about being neat. It's necessary. It's not about being a special occasion. It's to be ordinary. It's more about us having callous knees praying for those who don't know Christ than having fine china for those who do. It's not about pride but humility. It's about tears. It's about sacrifice of comfort. It's about going down, not going up. It's about being motivated by joy and not by legalism. It's not about us. We may be a mess. Our houses may be a mess. Our lives may be a mess. But we're not leading people to us. We're leading people to Jesus. It's not about our image. It's not about our comfort. It's about Christ. We see in this text and are called to ask this question in our lives. What is Jesus able to do with the people we get into our everyday living? It will only happen when we do justice to that question and we exercise hospitality in the confidence of gospel hope. Father, we thank you for this good news. As we come now to your table, may we see in the bread and the cup how you came for us, how you love us, and how you call us not to merely be names on a list, but to be family at a table. We pray, God, as we take the cup, we would do it remembering your blood shed for us. And as we take the bread, we would do it remembering your body given for us. Spirit, now we ask you that you would give us words of encouragement to share with each other or words of confession that we need to bring forth. But above all, we pray that you would give us the reminder, the sign, the covenant promise that it is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus' name we pray.